Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, and this is the podcast that goes through all of the major, or the greatest, uh, most important major events, um, personalities, ideas, controversial ones in the life and history of the Roman Catholic Church. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to everyone who listens out there. Thank you, uh, especially to, to uh, our patrons on Patreon and everyone who supported the co- podcast. Um, hope you guys are doing well. Uh, remember, if you would like to uh, subscribe to the podcast, you can go follow us on uh, Spotify, where I'm hosted now, or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen should be available. also have a channel on YouTube. I post the, uh, the podcast. Uh, and um, also you can find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, go like the page, and um, and our website, uh, churchcontroversies.com. I sometimes post links to things there. I've been behind posting them. I actually have a new article out in Crisis Magazine. I also write there as well. And if you would like to become a patron of the uh, of the podcast and uh, help out and donate, uh, you can do that. Uh, Controversies in Church History has a Patreon page. And um, donation levels beginning with $5 a month. So... Thank you, everyone, again. Welcome to this episode, this single episode, which is a uh, re-recording. This episode is on the Arian crisis, uh, 320 or so, circa 320 to about 381. And actually, this is, if you don't know the history of the podcast, that this had been something I was doing as a sort of like lecture series uh, once a month at my local parish. And this is one of the last ones I think I did before the lockdowns killed off the monthly lecture series. <laughs> nobody, nobody showed up after it came back a year and a half later or whatever it was. And so we started doing it as a podcast. And um, I'm re-recording some of these lectures because the sound quality is not great. This one also because it was a little, for a lot of reasons, a little rushed my presentation, I thought, of, of the Aryan crisis. So I'm redoing it. But also because... It's it's a good time for it, I think. Um, if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar to at least some degree with the Arian crisis of the 4th century. And because, you know, this is 2023, this is the 10th anniversary of the election uh, of Pope Francis, because if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably aware we're going through a crisis, have been for a while now uh, in the Catholic Church, and sometimes people like to compare what's going on now to the Aryan crisis of the fourth, fourth crisis of the fourth century. So that would be a good time to go revisit it. Talk about, by the way, uh, you know, comparisons between what was going on then and the crisis today. So we'll get to some of that, but also as well a background on what this was and why it happened. So without further ado, let us begin. If you don't know, I'm not going to spend too much time on the Council of Nicaea. I have a separate episode on the actual council. But in the early church, uh, in the early 4th century, by the early 4th century, there were debates um, uh, breaking out amongst um, you know, bishops and, uh, and other peoples in the early church over the nature of the divinity of Christ. And if you, you, know, you read the Gospels, you read early... Uh, Christian writings, you know, um, followers of Jesus believed he was God himself, that he was God. But of course, the scriptures don't really explain in any great detail how he was God. And this is kind of what happens 
in the uh, late third, well, even before the late third century, but definitely by the early fourth century, there's a big debate about it. Okay, how can he be God if he's a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, an historical person? And the controversy we're talking about here centered around a man named Arius, uh, who was a popular deacon of the city of Alexandria in Egypt, uh, born in Libya, but his background before about 318 or so AD is some kind of sketchy, but he was popular, had a large following in the city. He had studied uh, under a uh, theologian named Lucian of Antioch, who was martyred during the Diocletian persecutions uh, of the early 4th century, about 312. And by all accounts, from what survived of his writings and from descriptions of other um, of his opponents, he was a very good logician, logician insisted on logical rigor, uh, philosophical rigor, and he was known for his austere way of life, an impressive demeanor. Uh, most of our sources about him actually come from later hostile figures, but we can give a good sketch of what he believed with some precision. And one of the things Arius was concerned about from earlier Christian thinkers was a desire to safeguard the unity and the transcendence of God the Father, that God is one and that he is beyond all created things. He's not a part of nature or anything like this. This is, again, a background in which, you know, by the time this breaks out, Christianity is a, a force in the Roman world now, and you have people who have embraced it who come from classically educated backgrounds. And in that background, you go back to the Greek philosophy, the idea that God is immutable, impassable he can't change he can't suffer so the idea that he would be sort of you know in the world the actual god himself the internal eternal immutable um unchanging god himself uh was something that was hard for him to deal with intellectually speaking and this was effectively arius's concern and his idea was that only god the father only god alone by himself was what he called un what sometimes called unoriginate uh eternal and no other being could share in his essence or in his uh, substance otherwise he would not be one god this excluded of course uh, the son uh, and therefore christ because of course jesus was supposed to be according to and by the way the the um, early christians did identify him as the son of god so you know what does that mean well it's christ and therefore uh, Arius uh, rejects this idea. He quite openly states that the Word, or the Son of God, could only be a creature, even if he was divine in some sense, usually as a matter of you know a, a created creature participating in the being of God, but so then could other creatures. Long story short, he gets in trouble with the Bishop of uh, Alexandria, who convenes a, uh, a synod of the city, uh, Assembly of Egyptian Bishops, and condemns Arius as a heretic and exiles him. This leads to eventually the um the the uh, to the calling of the council of nicaea because this this thing is so um this uh conflict gets so uh big and constantine the emperor convenes this synod they eventually adopt the idea that um what they come to uh, to describe and this is really inside baseball here but um this rebuttal to this, uh, this idea of Arius, that he, the Son of God, had been created, was to say that he was homoousios. The Greek means he's of the same substance of as the Father. And, uh, and then it condemned Arius, and it produced this creed, the Nicene Creed, at least the first version of it. It's not the one we actually recite today at Mass, but um, um, 
Uh, and so you had this production of this creed. This is supposed to, you know, they did other things at that council. This is supposed to end the debate. Uh, however, it did not for several reasons. A couple of them is that uh, on the one hand, this seemed to say, okay, he's of the same, you know, son of God is of the same uh, substance as the Father. What does that mean? Does that mean physical substance? Of course, that would be, you know, God's supposed to be spirit, according to the Gospel of John. Um, this is uh, partly because of that term itself. Uh, it was kind of ambiguous. Uh, homo usios uh, could mean physical substance. Uh, in fact, it had something like 28 meanings scholars have been able to figure out. Um, they also used another word, um, like hypostasis, uh, to refer to, to Jesus. And by the way, these terms, like they'll eventually become, like you've probably heard, usia means substance, perhaps. Or hypostasis is equated to our, our English word person. These, te- these terms didn't have those well-defined meanings in the early 4th century. They could mean a lot of different things. And in fact, again, these Greek theologians, this is mostly Greek-speaking theologians here, are struggling to, to explain how God could be both one and three at the same time, who could both be eternal and, you know, <laughs> and in the world at the same time. And so they had to invent new meanings for words like hypo. Hypostasis had almost never been used in classical Greek, that term. So they're using these words interchangeably. They're meaning using the same terms to mean different things. So there's a lot of confusion, semantically speaking. Um, and so there's no agreement on which the proper meanings of these words were. The other reason it didn't, call, uh, didn't uh, tamp down the conflict is that the term homoousios, or homoousios, homoousion, which version of the word, uh, was suspect to a lot of early Christian thinkers. Why? Because it had been used in previous um, previous um, writings by Gnostic heretics, Gnostic writers of the third century, um, who who used those terms. So it had this kind of icky, you know, it was like it would be it would be like I don't know using. I'm trying to think of a, a contemporary you know a, you know a, um, connotation, but it's it'd be like adopting you know Marxist terminology or something and putting it into the church's uh, definitions or something. It was weird to people. And um, one thing to note about this, by the way, about this is about this this crisis that really the Council of Nicaea just kind of kicked off because it it actually, as you see, that confusion causes a lot of the problems. Um, This was done in the East by Greek-speaking theologians. Um, The West was, theologically speaking, underdeveloped beginning of the 4th century. Uh, It had something of a vocabulary to describe God in Trinitarian terms, but it was not nearly as refined as that of the Eastern Church, which is why a lot of uh, Latin theologians didn't understand what was going on at first. They thought it was just some sort of a Greek thing. Um, it's not until later in the, about the middle of the century when St. Hilary of Poitiers uh, will take, under, take up a defense of the Council of Nicaea uh, against, the, uh, against the Arians that Western theology will catch up. So it's mostly an Eastern thing to begin with. The other thing to note about this is that this conflict over theological dispute Partly, it was so bitter. It was because um, because of the emperors at the time, with Constantine, became Christian. Um, but and so they were invested in this. They wanted to have unity in the empire. That's why Constantine called the first council in Nicaea. It also happened to be um, part of the background because in the fourth century, the uh, Roman Empire uh, underwent a series of shocks, particularly defeats in battle. Um, the Emperor Julian, uh, Julian the Apostate, 
in Christian history in 363 is uh, suffers defeat at the hands of, of the Persians, uh, the Persian emperor Shapur the first. And later on, we'll get to the, come back to this. The emperor, Eastern emperor Valens is defeated, killed at the battle of Adrianople in 378 by a Gothic army. And so this must have added to the sense that, you know, whoever was wrong in this conflict must be causing the empire to suffer, right? Because you're getting the, this vital doctrine wrong. So it was both directly, because the emperors will intervene in this, by the way, <laughs> um, they're a major cause. They back one side and then the other, so that's another huge cause. So it's something to keep in mind as we're talking about this. And just to set the scene for you, if you don't know, I'm, you know, Constantine the Great, um, um, and publicly embraces Christianity in 312 when he becomes sole ruler of the, becomes ruler of the Western Empire, and then later on, about a dozen years later, becomes the sole ruler of the empire. But even 312, he, he begins identifying with the, the Christian God, becomes a patron of the Christian Church, and um, when he does take over, becomes you know sole ruler. Um, that reshapes the empire because now Christianity is a an official force within the Roman world, but uh, it also has a direct effect on the emperors after him. Because when he dies in 337, he has three sons to whom he leaves his empire. And Constantine himself was a ruthless character, but his sons were as well. And on their orders, when he, after he dies, the, the three sons who were in line to inherit basically ordered the army to massacre the rest of Constantine's family, except for two of his cousins. And they, they divide the empire between them. Uh, in the uh, eastern part of the empire, Greece, uh, modern-day Turkey, the Middle East, uh, Constantius II uh, claims to be, calls himself Augustus, which is the title of the emperors. Um, his son Constantine II takes power in the west, which is Britain, Spain, and Gaul. And then in the center of the, uh, of the empire, Constans I. Uh, he wasn't very imaginative with these names for his sons, but he, he rules over Italy and Illyricum, which is kind of in the Balkans to a certain degree. So he has this three sons rule this tripartite empire, and um, it doesn't last very long because they've come to blows almost immediately. Uh, Constans I uh, gets into a uh, battle with uh, Constantine II in the west and defeats him um, in 340, and Constantine II dies in battle. So Constantine becomes, you know, uh, emperor of the West as well. And, um, and so Constance, this is important to note because Constance was a supporter of the Nicene settlement, as most bishops in the West were at that point, uh, and was a supporter of the major figure at this, uh, this is 340, the major figure supporting the cause of Nicene Orthodoxy was Athanasius of Alexandria, that's a great saint, while his counterpart, Constantius II, uh, supported Arianism. And in fact, in 340, Athanasius is in exile because Constantius II has exiled him. And this will be a, a theme throughout this, uh, this uh, episode. Uh, and yet, uh, Constance, who was the support, things change in 350 because he is uh, murdered by a man named Magnus Magnetius, who's a usurper who defeats him in battle and then murders him. And eventually, a year later, Constantius II comes from the east, defeats Magnetius, and becomes sole emperor in 351, which he will reign for the next 10 years as sole emperor. He will spend a lot of his reign fighting threats on the borders, uh, places in the Persians and elsewhere. And he will actually die on his way back west to deal with the revolt of his cousin, Julian the Apostate, in 361. So you have this infighting for several decades after Constantine's death in 337. 
and uh, and once he's dead, uh, once Constantine has passed, you have a reaction against um, the Nicene uh, settlement. And there are two groups of people who made this happen. Uh, one were sympathizers, like the two uh, the two Eusebii. There were two bishops, prominent ones at the Council of Nicaea, uh, Bishop of Euse- uh, Eusebius of Caesarea and uh, Eusebius of Nicomedia, which is in Turkey. And um, and so they're leaders of this this first group who were they voted for the creed, but only because Constantine had pressured them to do so. And then there were many others who were probably more numerous, who were more or less orthodox, but who were suspicious of the non-biblical and Gnostic heritage of the word homoousios. It was a non-biblical word, too, is one of the things they had a problem with. All the terms, by the way, that Arius used uh, to, you know, to make his arguments, he, he, they refused to use non-biblical ter- phrases, so they're kind of biblical, biblicists in that regard. And um, this group, led by the two Eusebii, um, soon after Nicaea began um, holding synods, and deposing all the leaders of the, of the Nicene settlement. Um, people like Marcellus of Ancyra, the bishop, um, other bishops, um, a man named Eustatius of Antioch, but most prominently, of course, Athanasius of Alexandria. He managed to get himself reinstated once Constantine died. But, of course, uh, imperial politics guaranteeing divisions would continue. In 338, Eusebius of Nicomedia gets himself installed as Bishop of Constantinople. Uh, In the same year, a council at Antioch um, uh, deposes an Athanasius and orders a second exile for him. He flees Alexandria in 339 at risk of being expelled. And a man from Cappadocia named Gregory takes over as uh, Bishop of Athanasius C. And so, as I mentioned before, after you know the death of Constantine II in the West, who supported Nicene Christianity, uh, excuse me, uh, death of Constantine, Constans becomes sole ruler. He supports the Nicenes and Athanasius, um, and so you have this, um, you do have this uh, attempt to try to patch things up while he's alive. Um, at a synod, uh, at um, a synod in Rome in that same year, the, Julius I, the Pope at the time receives Marcellus of Ancyra and Athanasius in Rome. Uh, at a synod there, he acknowledges Athanasius and uh, Marcellus are, are not guilty of any heresy, confirms Athanasius, confirms them both as bishops of their sees. So you have this division open up between east and west now, and you also have a series of councils. There is a council held in Antioch in 341, which um, there are almost all eastern bishops, they're all hostile to Athanasius, and they write, they issue the first of several multiple Arian confessions that begin to um, produce a formal doctrine of faith opposed to um, that of, of Nicene, uh, the Nicene statement. And, um, and so you have this, um, uh, you have this sort of counter, you know, creation of synods, calling of synods, counter synods. Uh, and the next year, there's a response to this, um, the Council of Sertica. Constans and Constantius both agreed to hold a council to resolve this issue, and it meets at Sertica, which I believe is in Italy. I don't remember exactly where, um, but um, it fails because the Eastern bishops who show up there challenge the right of Athanasius to be there. They don't consider him a bishop anymore. The Western bishops release a statement claiming to be an attack on Arianism, but which stresses uh, the unity of the Father and Son without addressing how they could be separate. 
And again, this is part of the problem. They don't know how to do that as of yet in language that will make it clear to people. And so the Eastern bishops leave. Um, they retire to, uh, to Greece, to Philippopolis, and they re- release a statement um, justifying the deposition of Athanasius and Marcellus of Ancyra, and they condemn the Pope and others who were at that, at that council. And in fact, they append one of these creeds that they'd written, uh, been written at the Council of Antioch the year before uh, with additional anathemas directed at the Marcellus of Ancyra. And so you have all this going on. In fact, in another... Um, Council a couple of years later uh, in Antioch, uh, another one. There's a fifth Arian confession, sometimes called the Macrostiche, which is a, a longer version of this um, Eastern version of of this night of this Arian creed, and written longer to address Western bishops, uh, and it's presented to Western bishops in Milan, and um, it's uh, conciliatory uh, in nature, and it replaces, but it replaces the term. That they, they sound offensive, homoousios, you know, of like substance, with uh, the term homoousios, excuse me, homoousios, which means of like substance. So you have a change from of the same substance to of like substance. And this will become, uh, this will be picked up later on, as we'll see, this, this uh, a desire to be conciliatory. It'll be a feature of later Aryan thinking, trying to, trying to, um, trying to you know, create uh, vague or capacious proposals that will sort of paper over differences. Uh, and a few, uh, within a few years, uh, once again, um, um, uh, Athanasius had been uh, exiled. He's exiled five different times, actually, throughout this, this, whole, this whole period. Um, and, uh, I, and he comes back once the Bishop of Alexandria dies in 346, uh, another council is held in Milan v. 47, which actually deposes uh, um, someone who's associated with Marcellus of Ancyra. And for reasons that become clear at this point, Athanasius basically sort of washes his hand of Marcellus because he realizes their theology is actually kind of hanky. Uh, it's heretical for fairly um, for reasons that uh, I won't go into and won't dwell on it, but he realized there were problems with what he was saying. And Athanasius had been, you know, as he goes over time, his theology develops uh, because people are working out um, the meaning is of all these, you know, confusing words here. Um, and so what, so you have this precarious peace that's brokered by Constance and Constantius, uh, which comes to an end in 350, um, when, uh, Constance is killed and Pope Julius dies two years later. And so the ascension of Constantius as still emperor kind of changes the dynamic of the conflict because he supports Arianism. And so again, more councils are held in 351, a second council at Sirmium uh, is, is held, uh, which um, produces another confession of faith. And they, um, um, and so you have this going on two year, uh, a year later. Eastern bishops send a delegation to the new pope, Liberius, and present him with a protest, written protest, against Athanasius. Constantius then sends an envoy to Alexandria demanding Athanasius' recognition. Uh, but Athanasius uh, rather shrewdly uh, refuses unless he gets an, unless the order came from the emperor himself. Um, uh, the Western bishops ask Constantius to convene a council, which is held in Arles. But when it is held there, Constantius pressures the bishops into uh, condemning Athanasius. So, um, because he's being accused, the Pope uh, asks for another council, which meets at Milan in 355, a couple of years later. Um, 
At this council, when Athanasius' supporters try to put the Nicene Creed before the bishops to sign it, the supporters of the emperors rise and threaten them all with exile if they don't condemn Athanasius. Uh, only three were refused uh, and sent into exile. Um, the, uh, the next year, uh, Hilary of Poitiers became another prominent bishop who resisted Constantius. Uh, he was also exiled for his pains. And so the Pope uh, writes three letters to these exiled bishops, trying to, you know, um, stay in connection with them, but his messengers were arrested. And an envoy came to Rome demanding he appear before the emperor at Milan. Liberius refused, um, but he was taken away by force in the night to Milan, where after defending himself and refusing to condemn Arius, he was exiled to Thrace. And thereafter, uh, Constantius uh, appointed a deacon named Felix to be Pope in his stead, and so you have this, uh, again, this campaign to get rid of these supporters of the Nicene, excuse me, the Nicene settlement, uh, including, of course, um, uh, Athanasius, having dealt with the Western bishops. Constantius uh, turns backing into Athanasius in 356, uh, actually at the date, February 8th. Um, imperial troops actually broke into the church in, in uh, Alexandria where Athanasius was celebrating a, a vigil liturgy. And he had to flee to the desert uh, to the to the mon to the uh, to the monks of Egypt, where he had their support. And so, for the next, I think, four or five years, he moves around. That is five years. Excuse me. It's the next five years, he moves around from place to place, sheltered by his supporters, all the while issuing writings defending uh, the Nicene faith. And someone else, a man named George, uh, is uh, named bishop of uh, Alexandria. Uh, and so you have this, uh, again, this campaign by, um, by Constantius um, to do this. You have several more um, councils. Um, again, we'll go through all these, these local synods and councils. One I'll mention in 357, the year after Athanasius is exiled, the Third Council of Sirmium. And I mention this because, again, you have this, um, you have um, um, this effort to create this, um, sort of compromise creed, um, uh, sometimes referred to as um, the, uh, the blasphemy by Hilary of Poitiers because it was a, a compromise. Uh, it avoided both terms, um, homoousios and homoousios. Uh, and um, um, supporters of this new creed forced, um, for example, Pope Liberius to sign it, along with a, uh, a, a condemnation of Arius. So this is not, an, they're, not they're trying to uh, not trying to defend Arius at this point. They've kind of gotten beyond him. Don't want to go as far as he does. And in fact, at this point, sometimes, and I'll get to this in a moment because there are several different versions of what we call Arianism. Um, you have the triumph by the end of the 350s about something we call um, semi-Arianism. Um, by now, many Eastern bishops have realized that you can't actually deny the unity of the Father and the Son, so you can't do what he did. And so they hold a, a council in which they release a statement using uh, the term homoiousios, and this becomes the sort of default position for a majority of bishops. And um, a few years later, they arrange for a fourth council at Sirmium in 359, which produces a confession, um, promotes a, 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 which promotes a compromise for, formula which uses another term uh, to refer to Christ. Instead of homoiousios, uh, it says that Christ was homoios, H-O-M-O-I-O-S, which means like him, um, but omitted the phrase in all things. And so this formula will be actually reproduced in the next couple of, couple, more, couple of years 
in various synods with minor changes, and by Constantius and by the, the synods that he holds, imposed on the entire church. So, um, so you have all this going on around about 360, 361, and I mention this because this is toward the end of uh, Constantius's life, because his armies are facing um, greater and greater difficulties on the Roman borders. Um, he uh, um, goes to war with Persia, doesn't go well, and in fact, he's in the east fighting when, in 361, his cousin, Julian, one of the guys who survived the massacre of Constantine's family, uh, is proclaimed emperor by his troops in the west, and he goes back uh, to the west to try to uh, put this role down, but he gets ill, dies on the way there, and decides before he dies to name Julian as emperor, uh, which he does, and so... Uh, for a brief period, you're going to have, and we'll get this in a second, and we'll go too much detail. Uh, and Julian, who, by the way, was raised Christian, but was kind of, um, uh, for a variety of reasons, rejected it, um, sort of came out as a pagan when he's made emperor in 361 and tries to restore paganism as the primary religion of the Roman Empire. However, one thing had already happened, because you had this persecution of um, of the defenders of, uh, of, of Nicaea. And I should, forgot to mention, basically everyone who didn't get along with uh, Constantine's, excuse me, Const Constantius's um, position was deprived. So basically by the time, by the end of the 360s, end of the 350s, um, every defender of, of Nicene Christianity has been uh, removed. So all the major bishoprics were in the hands of major sees. They had no opposition. Um, but this had two main effects. One is that you have... Uh, on the one hand, it led to um, it led to a sort of uh, circular firing squad against amongst these these followers more or less of Arius. So people emerged from Arius's teachings, and um, they fell out among themselves, and they couldn't replace uh, the Nicene I, uh, Nicene um, settlement with their own ideas because they all disagreed slightly on how Christ was divine. And there were three main groups, and I'll try to go through this maybe spell this word out. Uh, one who were actually, they were eventually rejected by both of these groups, the Anomoyans, A-N-O-M-O-E-A-N-S, Anomoyans, um, so named because they thought that Christ was uh, Anomoyos, which means unlike the Father. So that's that's, guess that's basically Arianism. It sounds like Arius's position. Another group called the, uh, I guess it's the Homoousians, Homoousians, because they thought Christ was homoousios, uh, of like substance. And then the third group, the homoians, because they believed, I'm not already mentioned this term, homoios, um, H-O-M-O-I-S, uh, was like or similar to, uh, which was kind of a vague compromise meant to cover all opinions, uh, and they couldn't get along with each other. The other thing that happened is that, um, is that the persecution of, uh, what happened is the persecution of, because it was the uh, Homoians that were supported by Constantius, it led to um, the supporters of the Nicene Creed and the uh, the, uh, the people who thought that uh, Christ was merely like of like substance as the Father to come closer together as a result of all this persecution. And so, um, this, by the way, was something that uh, Julian didn't want because, of course, he was a uh, trying to revive paganism. He didn't want a united Christian front, so he began persecuting Christians. And, um, but he also, and he also, um, um, exiled uh, Athanasius again in 362. 
when um, Julian dies in 363, Athanasius will turn uh, once again to uh, to Alexandria, um, holding out against all this. But his uh, Julian's successor in the East, because the East has two emperors now, East and West, uh, was a man named Valens, who was a supporter of uh, Homoeism. And so he uh, he was he forced Athanasius once more for the fifth and final time into exile in 363. But the Alexandrians were on his side, were so um, were, uh, caused such unrest, Valens was forced to recall him. And Athanasius returns one last time, 363, in triumph. Uh, and he's never bothered again. He lives the last 10 years of his life. He dies in 373, uh, championing Nicene Orthodoxy. But you still have an emperor uh, who supports the, the, the compromise. Uh, in, for the, uh, for, uh, Valens becomes emperor in 364, excuse me, 363, and he, um, um, as we'll see in a moment, reigns for 15 years. So in another decade and a half, you have this, in the East anyway, this, um, this conflict with what, you know, this, this anti-Nicene um, um, faction in the church supported by the emperor. And, but by this point, you begin to have things turning. Uh, in fact, they're already beginning to turn in 362, even before um, um, Julian dies, uh, uh, Athanasius had, had held a synod in uh, in Alexandria in 362, which condemned Arius um, and helped uh, reconcile those who had been forced to sign these formulas under Constant, uh, Constantius under duress. So what he's getting is bringing the bringing unity back to the Church of Alexandria. And uh, but more importantly, in terms of development of okay, what, what's the you know how do you clear up all this semantic confusion? They began to note other implications of Arius's beliefs, and one of them was the implications for the Holy Spirit, something had gone virtually uh, undiscussed before this, uh, with the effect that not only did, did Arius's beliefs make the father, uh, the son, a creature, and therefore d- diminished him, it also diminished the Holy Spirit, who. Again, that's also thought to be divine, of course. And so brings that to the fore. And in fact, with the passing of uh, Athanasius, you begin to have, you already have them coming forward, other champions. Um, and these are the great um, uh, Cappadocian theologians. They're called the Cappadocians because they're from that area of Turkey. Uh, among them, the leader really of the, of the, the Nicene party to a large degree after Athanasius dies is St. Basil. Um, St. Basil uh, uh, of uh, Caesarea. I think it's Caesarea. I can't remember, actually. But St. Basil, uh, the great Cappadocian theologian, uh, who came from a a Christian family in Pontus. Several of his uh, family members become saints along with him. His sister Macrina, for example, was a a, a saint. Um, uh, uh, Later on, he abandons his career in government to join his family and and sort of an ascetic. They set up a sort of ascetic... uh, um, compound, I guess, in their home, but becomes ordained a priest in 365 and then made a bishop in 370. And as a bishop, he begins to try to work to restore the unity of the Eastern Church. And as I said before, it kind of takes up, uh, to a degree, Athanasius's mantle. But uh, he was a much more rigorous thinker, systematic thinker in some ways than Athanasius was. Um, one of his main contributions to all this was to develop the idea just mentioned that Arianism downgraded the Holy Spirit in addition to the Son of God. And being more systematic and philosophical than Athanasius, um, Athanasius refused to use non-biblical terms. Again, you kind of see this with these early generations. They, were, they, wanted to, they didn't want to get very far from the sources of the faith. 
Uh, but Basil was. He was trained in Greek philosophy, and he used these terms to draw out conclusions of Trinitarian, Orthodox, Trinitarian orthodoxy in a much more logical way. And um, in particular, he stressed the importance of delineating much more clearly and thoroughly than Athanasius ever did um, um, the differences between the three persons of the Trinity. And in fact, he championed the idea that there were three hypostases in the Godhead. Again, hypostasis is that term which I mentioned earlier, but at the beginning of the fourth century, we didn't, it wasn't really clear what it meant exactly. It's under the influence of Basel and other thinkers. Um, I'll get to the other major one in a moment. Um, um, that they begin to give it this, it means something like person in English, and begins to ha take shape. And so reconcile people would oppose this formula. The reason why they opposed it, by the way, is that um, uh, Origen used that used that phrase. There were three hypostases, you know, for the three you know beings of the Holy Spirit. And Origen had been kind of had some hanky sort of heretical beliefs, and people were kind of skeptical about it. Uh, with Basil and his other uh, confreres, um, they're beginning to flesh out what Nicaea meant by the end of the three seventies. And this is kind of along with changes in the empire, what leads to the, the triumph of Nicene Orthodoxy. The biggest, well, one of the biggest things in political terms is the death of Valens. Um, the Gothic army, which has been, it's a long story if you know Roman history at all, the Goths had been sort of um, seeking shelter within the Roman Empire because you had people from Central Asia, the Huns, pushing them west. They were ill-treated by the Romans, and so they gathered an army and at Adrianople, the Emperor Valens went to meet them and got wiped out. Um, massive, massive loss for the Romans, and Valens is killed. This leads to two emperors uh, coming in, uh, to power in east and west, uh, Gratian in the west and Theodosius, Theodosius the Great, in the, in the east, who were both supporters of Nicene Christianity. So you have Orthodox emperors return, uh, and they do what their predecessors had did. They they issued decrees in 380 and 381, imposing Nicene Orthodoxy on all the Christians of the empire, and depriving any Arians of both their their uh, offices in the church and their churches. So you had this attempt here. Still, um, even by this late date, in by 381, there's still a lot of support uh, in Constantinople for these ideas. Uh, they've been associated with emperors, I guess, perhaps is one of the reasons. I don't know exactly why. And um, so um, a couple of things happened to sort of put the stamp officially and make uh, Nicaea's uh, formulation fleshed out a little more or a lot more, actually, um, the orthodoxy of the church. Um, one of the people uh, uh, responsible for this is, uh, again, one of the friends of uh, Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus. And um, Gregory is a childhood friend of Basil, uh, was ordained priest in 362, supported Basil, becoming the bishop uh, of his area in 370. And, um, however, they had a falling out because in 372, Basil got into a uh, a sort of turf war um, jurisdictional struggle with another bishop and in order to oppose him he he uh, he planned to and he did actually make his friend Gregory a bishop but Gregory wanted no part of this and so when he was made bishop he basically refused to take possession of his see and then withdrew to a famous shrine the shrine of St. Thecla modern day Turkey as well I think um, but is in modern-day Turkey, except it was, and, and just basically uh, withdrew from all this, didn't want to do it, didn't want the responsibilities, which is fascinating. 
Uh, however, in 379, he left his shrine uh, to go to Constantinople. Why? Because he was called to take charge of and sort of effectively act like a bishop to perform Episcopal duties for the small minority of Nicene supporters in Constantinople, which was surrounded by a population that was still supporting, you know, um, uh, Arianism. And so this was in 379. So in over the next three years, um, he would face uh, attacks both verbal and physical from the Arians. There were several people that tried to, you know, you know shout him down and try to, you know, shut down the small church he had there for his community. But he managed to uh, stabilize things there. And as well, he began, delivered a series of very famous orations. They're called the Theological Orations. <clears throat> On the Nature of the Trinity in which he develops further the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. And this is the major breakthrough here that happens, is that he ins begins to insist on the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. Again, before this, there hadn't been much discussion of it. People hadn't known, is, is it divine like Christ? Again, you're, talking about, you're working out what it means to these things to be divine. And he's the one who insists on, no, it, it must be also part of the Godhead, co-equal with the Father and the Son. This, of course, famously will get into the... Um, the creed we still recite, and the creed we recite was actually created or, or uh, written not by the Council of Nicaea. They take that creed and add to it, add this clause, especially about the Holy Spirit. Uh, at, a, at an Eastern Synod council that was called by the Emperor Theodosius in Constantinople in 381, which is, again, the one we use today, in which they confirm, the um, again, the, the divinity of the Holy Spirit along with the Son. And so you have a trinity of co-equal, three co-equal persons as has been defined more or less ever since. And uh, and with this, again, Theodosius later on, well, Theodosius will be the one who actually makes Christianity the actual official religion of the Iron Empire, but this is effectively the end of the empire, end of Arianism in the East. It, by the way, will revive itself again um, through some of the Gothic tribes that get into Europe and the West, but it's finished here, and this is the end of this crisis. I should mention one thing about this, however, is that... Um, it wasn't clear at the time that the Second Constantinople, the Second Council of Constantinople in 381, was actually an ecumenical council. There was another council meeting more at the, at the same time in the West at Aquileia, which is modern day France, if I'm not mistaken, and which confirmed the same things, but it apparently wasn't really clear that it was. So um, it actually is only confirmed uh, something like 70 years later. Yeah, uh, yeah 70 years later at the, uh, the Council of Chalcedon uh, in 451. So they didn't begin starting even counting it as one until much later. So it's an interesting thing that it worked out uh, that way. Um, again, I won't go through the later period of Arianism. It, it, there'll be that, uh, um, um, maybe I'll talk about it later when I talk about them. Maybe I'll do one of the barbarians and talk about that, uh, who ended the Roman Empire. But that effectively came to, the, to an end within the Catholic Church. Um, in, a, in the empire, definitely, of uh, support for Arianism. So a couple of things about the legacies of the Arian controversy in history. Um, a couple of things we have to talk about here. One thing I've kind of stressed in this, uh, this little discussion of, of the Arian crisis, you know, is this, you know, confusion, right? This confusion about what, well, what are we supposed to believe and why are we supposed to believe it? and how it took time for them to work these things out. And in fact, you get a lot of historians, again, this is modern, this is modern historians who are probably basically all modernists anyway, but I'm gonna mention this. 
um, a lot of modern historians especially don't like this period. They don't. They they, they usually tend to be sympathetic with Arius. Um, they basically some historians go so far as to claim there you know there wasn't really a crisis. Um, they say there was no real crisis. It was just. Um, it was basically the fault of people like Athanasius, who insisted on being right <laughs> uh, and everybody else being wrong, that caused this. And in fact, a lot of modern historians really dislike Athanasius for a lot of reasons. He's not, and one reason, by the way, is he's not an intellectual. He's not, he, he, he's a thinker. He had developed some thought, but he's not the same sort of philosophical theologian that the Cappadocian uh, fathers were. And that, and he is, he is absolutely convinced of the rightness of his creed, as was Arius. And um, again, Arius, by all accounts, was a logical, um, you know, rigorous thinker. By all accounts, led a good life. That's the other thing to note about this. It wasn't like he was some sort of deeply immoral person. And it seems to have bothered, and bothered modern historians that this was an actual... Uh, that this, you know, that this was all ginned up. This was like a, a political thing, primarily, that somehow it was a, a political um, settlement, the Nicene settlement. And uh, I won't go into this too much detail or bore you too much with it. One historian literally called Arianism the archetypal heresy, quote-unquote. He didn't mean that in a positive sense of being like, you know, the sort of model for all all heresies. He meant that, like, this is a way... The, the, the insinuation, I think he actually maybe I can sit down and said it, but the insinuation is the church basically uses it as a, as a template to condemn doctrines unfairly, in other words. In other words, it, you know, the, the, the effective thing is that the church just made stuff up. Uh, I say this because I, I just, I, I reject it out of hand. They weren't just making stuff up. Um, they really were fighting over things that mattered a lot. It mattered how, you know, how was, how could Jesus be divine, you know? Uh, it's a big thing. I mentioned this earlier. Like the classical world had a real problem with this, and all of a sudden you had people who really believed this, but now they they they've been, you know, they've embraced this faith, but they've been shaped by this very very rationalistic Greek culture, and they couldn't just let it go. And uh, one of the things that happens in in sometimes in the history of the church is that, you know, I, I did a, a an essay for Crisis Magazine a few month or two ago, and it was about development of doctrine. And it's funny how when people mention development of doctrine, they almost never mention, well, things like this. <laughs> they make it sound like doctrine just sort of, you know, inevitably develops or it develops through, you know, theologians writing books or something. The honest, the honest truth is that a lot of times things only develop when there's a serious conflict and somebody gets condemned as a heretic. Um, other words, somebody can be definitively wrong. And I think that bothers a lot of modern people because they don't like it. Because you condemned, you go, you that's it. You're you're done for all of eternity, and that that offends some people. But that is kind of the implication of this. The church believed you could know, you know, what truth was. You could know the truth about God, and if you got it wrong, you're responsible for it. That's what heresy means, by the way. It means something like, uh, heresy means something like choice, like you made the wrong one. Um, and so I, I reject the fact that this, this is, there's an insinuation that, you know, the church sort of, sort of made this stuff up. Well, they didn't. They were trying the best they could to get these things right. Could, could churchmen have been, you know, more conciliatory? They can always be more conciliatory. Uh, they almost never are. <laughs> um, but these types of conflicts sometimes are the only things that force things to, to develop a lot of times. And so my point is that sometimes it might be necessary for things to move forward or at least may come to that point.
Um, but I don't believe, I don't buy the criticism um, of, of Athanasius. And I certainly don't believe uh, that, um, you know, again, the, the insinuation is that, you know, Athanasius got, an, excuse me, Arius got a raw deal. You know, look, Constantine did basically force everyone at, at, at uh, not everyone, but pressured the bishops at Nicaea to make that statement. But again, so did all these other Arian emperors. They all did that. Um, you know, sometimes ideas went out because they are more, um, well, they're true, right? One of the things, for example, that um, the great church historian Peter Berger mentioned about this debate between Athanasius and Arius and these different ideas of God is that if you accept Arius's idea that you know God is alone, God and you know, the Son has nothing to do with it, Christ has nothing to do with it, well, that means you don't really have God. That you, God didn't really come down and sacrifice himself for men. Uh, and therefore, we really don't have uh, as intimate a relationship with him as we thought we did. Peter Berger makes the point that, you know, as the, the empire is beginning to sort of crumble in the 4th and 5th centuries, that that becomes really meaningful to people. Um, they desire a more intimate connection with the divine, and so it wins partly for that reason as well. And yes, politics is a part of life and history. That happens. Um, but it also speaks to the intrinsic, uh, you know, worth of the ideas. It's not merely a matter of politics. And finally, as I mentioned at the beginning, I want to talk about you know what this means for us. I talked about the crisis we're undergoing now within the church and the great within the world itself. Um, you know, are we living through another Aryan crisis? This claim has been made by people I respect, and it's there are you know in history there are always you know there's always continuity and, and difference. And when you make these types of sorts of analogies, they, they work and don't work. I mean, there are definitely similarities. As you can kind of see, you have these, you have uh, effectively, um, as we do today, you have a lot of people in authority who don't believe in basic doctrines of the church. Uh, Arius basically rejected a basic doctrine of the church, and he had people who supported him in that. So you have people in, people in places of high authority in the church who deny basic teachings of the faith. You also have these people imposing ambiguous doctrinal formulas on the church. It's also very similar to what's going on today. I mentioned the creeds that Constantius imposed effectively on the whole church. Uh, and then, you know, there's the length and severity of the crisis itself. Um, it lasted for decades. It really didn't. The whole Christological controversy over, you know, who Christ was lasted much longer. It took a long time to work that out about the nature of God. To people's satisfaction, and uh, it was severe partly because it affected everyone. This, even though these debates were very, this is very, you know, kind of esoteric, you know, philosophical discussions of the nature of God. I think I want to say it was either Basil or Gregory of Nyssa. I can't remember which one. That during the high days of the Arian crisis, um, um, I can't remember which theologian said this, but they they talked about how everyone was talking about this stuff. People in the marketplace. I think it was Gregory of Nyssa who said he would go into the marketplace to buy bread and he'd ask a, a baker for bread and he would get, well, the father is greater than the son. <laughs> so this stuff really bitterly divided people um, in that vein. So that's very similar to what's going on today. However, um, there are some major differences. Uh, one is that we're going through all this while at the same time we've been going through a massive, massive moral crisis I mean the sexual abuse crisis as well. It doesn't look like to me most of the Aryans were 
<laughs> pedophiles. <laughs> they weren't perverts. Again, Arius was known for his uh, for his uh, the upstanding nature of his behavior. He was not a horrible person. He was not Ted McCarrick. Another difference uh, is the nature of the actual the content of the the conflict itself. The um, great uh, historian, Catholic historian Richard Rex, Cambridge guy, recently made a I guess gave a talk in which he. He said the church was going through the third great crisis in its history. Uh, this crisis, the Arian crisis, was about you know the nature of God. Who is God? The second one would be the Reformation. Okay, what is the church? And the third one, I think he's absolutely correct, is that the third crisis, which kind of begins in the 19th century, is what is humanity? And, um, and so I think it's different in that regard. It's not really about God's... It is about God, but... It's about our nature. How did God create us? How did he make us? Another difference is we live in just vastly different societies. I mean, it's so wildly different. There are no emperors. Um, I guess you could say there's an empire, an American empire, a global empire. I don't know. But different social, political structures. Uh, technology is so different. Uh, back in the Roman Empire, late Roman Empire, they would, if, they, if you lost public office, they could actually, they would actually try to destroy your memory through what modern, a, a, a series of practices modern historians call a demnatio memoriae. They would strike your name off of all public monuments. They would try to destroy all your books and stuff so that people nobody would know who you were. Well, you can't do that anymore because we have all this tech. But what you can do is you can reproduce false statements or ambiguous statements about the faith over and over and over and over and over again, which we have gotten all too used to in the last 10 years. And then finally, there's, there's, uh, there's no emperor uh, against the church today. But you could argue, you could argue the collective power of secular society. Um, I would argue that any, any powerful nation state today is 10 times more powerful than the old Roman Empire. More wealth, more technological power. Um, take all of them together, you could say that the forces arrayed against the church are much stronger. What does that mean for us? Um, one thing, again, one of the reasons I embarked on doing this podcast in the first place is, you know, partly, partly, you know, I, I always say this is not an uh, apologetic podcast. I'm not doing theology and I'm not trying to make excuses for this or that thing. I'm trying to clear up historical misunderstandings, but I do want to say that one of the things I do, another reason is to, you know, to, um, to clear up things, you know, there are usually misunderstandings about the church, sometimes out and out lies, perpetrated about its its history for propaganda purposes, those sorts of things. However, another purpose was to, to you know, to try to, in the most calm and dispassionate manner I can, you know, uh, present to Catholics some parts of their history that are kind of troubling, maybe very troubling sometimes. And in fact, I would say that sometimes in our own lives, but also in the life of the church over you know, millennia now, um, the God's providence can be kind of terrible. Um, he can work through um, awful, awful situations and allow awful things to, to, to come to pass through horrible political messes, through horrible things. And it's not always pleasant to contemplate. And I'm especially thinking about today because every time I get on social media, I hear somebody say something that, you know, they, you know, that they're getting tired of the whole crisis, that they don't know what to do, 
that, you know, it seems like um, I came across something the other day, I think, maybe this morning, I can't remember, basically someone complaining that it seems like, you know, most of the bishops are just like, you know, functionaries of, 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 the, of the New World Order or something like this. In other words, they're unreliable. They're not doing anything for us. We've been abandoned. And um, I don't know the, 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 the reasons for all these things that are going on. I will say a couple of things just to, I mean to encourage you, it's my point, but one thing is that, you know, why are we having, why are we going through this? Why are people that should be, you know, propagating the faith uh, seemingly trying to undermine it? And again, I can't answer that. What I can say is that you know, these people, you know who I'm talking about, um, cardinals um, who make outrageous statements, which is doesn't narrow it down, but there's plenty of them. You know, uh, they, um, we know that in this world, there's more than human power at stake. These people probably think they're doing the right thing uh, by trying to subvert the church's teaching, but they're actually working on behalf of forces that are, that are bad and want to harm us, uh, that are evil, in fact, right? And those evil forces that are arrayed against the spiritual forces, and there's also human ones too, but really things that are bigger than this world. I think the reason these things come to pass, the reason these things happen, I think they're meant to discourage us. I think they're meant to uh, demoralize the faithful. And, um, you know, it's tough in life. There's Sometimes there's just not a lot you can do. And then there isn't, by the way. If you're a layman and you're concerned, like there's not a lot you can... I mean, there are things you can do, don't get me wrong, but I mean like directly. You don't have any authority. I have no authority. So we can't do a whole lot directly. One thing you can do, and this is something, uh, and I'll end with this. This is why I, I, I really resent the sort of um, some of these um, scholars and historians. I think I won't say calumniating, but like denigrating Athanasius. Is that the thing about Athanasius is not his intellectual acumen, but his courage. His courage. Yeah, he uh, exiled five times. The fact that he refused. Um, to give in, you know, uh, that's the biggest thing. I mean, you know, to despair, to actively embrace despair is a sin. It is. We don't have any real, we don't have a right to despair uh, about God's love for us. And I think, you know, when you think about Athanasius was a hard guy, he was not touchy feely. I think you have to admire um, that courage. And again, we're, look, we're not Athanasius is here. I'm not an Athanasius. But you can always uh, begin by, by not giving in uh, at least a little bit to whatever is going on in some way. And the more you do it, uh, the easier it becomes. And um, when enough people refuse, that's when you begin to, you know, uh, to have an impact on things. And I think that's the biggest thing. Is to re- first, first and foremost thing is to refuse to give in to that demoralization, that despair. Um, there are signs of hope. Uh, there were plenty of, there were things in the Aryan crisis. I'm sure a lot of people thought there's no hope for the future. There was hope for the future. There is hope for the future. You know it when you see young priests who are faithful. You know it when you go and you find um, monastic houses that are living their, um, their charism in ways that are authentic. You know this. And so the big thing is to try to keep, as bad as things are, don't focus all of your attention on those things. That's what gets you demoralized. Now, it's hard to do, but look for those rays of light and look for the people who are like Athanasius, who, who refuse to sort of get into that. 
And so just to give you some encouragement, I'll leave you with a little quotation um, from the, uh, the French leader, Charles de Gaulle. I'm on the brain. I've been reading a biography of him lately. Who, uh, in 1943, in the middle of the, of the Second World War, when he was in exile, when France was occupied by Germany, and gave a gave a radio speech to encourage the troops back home in France, uh, and told them, "quote Let us be firm, pure, and faithful. At the end of our sorrow, there is the greatest glory of the world, that of the men who did not give in." Unquote. Men like Saint Athanasius during the Arian crisis. So, that is all for this episode of Controversies in Church History. If you liked it, uh, I thought it was great, go tell, oops, uh, go tell uh, your friends about it. Go spread the word. Tell them to subscribe. Go to Spotify. Go to Apple Podcasts. Sign up for it. Uh, follow us there. Uh, leave comments if you would. I'm going to try, again, I'm trying to make this a more interactive thing as far as I can. Uh, I know some of you, I think someone left a comment. I'll get back to you uh, if you're listening to this uh, in a mo- uh, momentarily. I've been busy a little bit lately, but um, let me know what you think. Let me know what you might want to hear more of. Um, go um, you know, like us on Facebook. Say hi on Twitter if you're around. Uh, please, uh, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm trying to monetize it, and so I need more subscribers there. Uh, like there. Um, again, um, uh, <laughs> website, churchcontroversies.com. I uh, have all the links to things on there. I also have, uh, I'll blog there from time to time, some, some new material there. So go visit the website if you would. And, uh, oh yes, if you if you like the content, um, if you want to help out the podcast, go to Controversies in Church, Church History on Patreon, a Patreon page where you can um, yeah, donate uh, as little as, uh, donate uh, three levels of donation or whatever, become a patron of the podcast. Um, you get uh, bonus material, bonus content, and thing, and early access to episodes. So if you want to do that, go do that. But in any case, thank you everyone for listening. I uh, hope you guys are having a great week, or have a great weekend, I should say, as I'm recording this. Uh, thank you all again, and uh, God bless you all.